two years ago, Madoc Lolaire turned against his own family and threw the kingdom of Crovan into civil war. Along with the church that named Splendor Karen a heretic for their veneration of gods long forgotten, Madoc bound the great houses to his will and drove out his own blood. Now, Madoc sits the throne and consolidates power through an alliance with the calculating house Gear. The rebel crown Kieran has returned from exile to seek both retribution and vindication. They will see Madoc deposed, his crimes revealed, and the old gods restored to their rightful place. With Kieran is an unlikely trio of retainers. Rowan Byrne, a mysterious outlaw with ties to the Fenag witches. Harvest Honeysuckle, the royal executioner under both Kieran and Madoc, now pledging their life to Kieran's cause. And last, Kieran's own blood, Venner Crace, a decorated soldier who tasted betrayal at Madoc's hands before even the usurpation. Through their bonds to one another and their shared purpose, the retinue will forge a new future for a kingdom haunted by its past. Hey everyone, presenting Speculate Rebel Crown, our new actual play miniseries starring Alex Axe, Dong Wan Song, Gregory A. Wilson, and Brandon O'Brien, with me, Michael R. Underwood, GMing. You can watch episodes live on twitch.tv slash Arvin Elleron once a month, or one day later at youtube.com slash Arvin Elleron. Also, Patreon backers get access to behind-the-scenes material from the Session Zero we recorded with the group to my GM prep and more. Rebel Crown is a forged-in-the-dark game of courtly intrigue, obsessive ambition, and perilous conflict created by Michael Dunn O'Connor and Narrative Dynamics. Learn more about Rebel Crown at https forward slash forward slash narrative dynamics forward slash rebel dash crown. Hope you'll check it out and stay tuned for the next episode. Does any do any of these roles um, jump out to anybody? I'm hesitating the urge to become a teacher and start selecting people by name. So the one that I would be interested in taking is the outsider, but also I am not hyper attached to it. I'm totally fine taking something else to that would better play off of somebody because that's kind of the main focus of this campaign that I would like to lean into. Like, for Cindered Seal, we were all kind of feeling out our characters as, like, the sessions went on. We didn't really come into the game with, like, this is who we are going to be, this is how we're going to play off of each other, this is how our characters are going to develop. So, like, with this built-in planning step, I would, as long as I am able to kind of build the character alongside someone else, to be like, okay, I want to be your foil, you can be mine. As long as there's that element for me, I'm okay with um, any other playbook. It's just that for the outsider, it just seems to be like the most obvious, because you literally have to pick a rival, and like, mm-hmm. that's the easiest way to be a foil to somebody else. Do you I, do you already have a sense of what role from that series question would best align with those goals as well? For me, that would depend on who I'm playing off of. Because I don't want to take something and then the person that I've chosen to be their rival ends up taking something that doesn't quite initially mesh that well. Of course, the playbook does specify that, like, if you, that you can lose a rival and then you have to pick another one. So that's not to say that everybody would have to pick roles that mesh well with mine. It's just that for at least that first rival, I would like it to be like an ideal kind of foil situation. Okay. Again, if I end up taking outsider, if it ends up not meshing well with the kind of crew that we want to make, I'm totally fine to do something else. I'd be really interested in playing the time traveler. I feel like when we did Case of the Cindered Seal, I fell into the trap of being more reactive than active, and time traveler is a role that requires taking more initiative. In which case, I think the most... The clearest link to a role would probably be Oracle of the Dream. So, do you want to be from the past or the future <laughs> and or some other axis? Because yeah, if we're delving into history, in, then... Like, mm-hmm. I mean, if Ooh. we're delving into history, we can still go both ways. 
Because you can either be from a potential... You can either be from the past that the history is already informed by, or a past that the history has totally blown past and never experienced. Or a future Mm -hmm. where the consequences of this going poorly have already been Mm -hmm. wrought. Like, all of those things are, are possible. Or, again drawing from the folkloric idea, you were briefly out of time, you came back mm-hmm. and way more time elapsed than you expected. Or you were briefly out of time, you had an entire life that passed by, that mm-hmm. was not what it should have been, quote unquote. And now you've like returned to it right where you left, and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> and, and if you were out of time in the dream space, like dream time passing very differently is a very reasonable thing, and it would also potentially make you better acquainted with the dream to mm-hmm. serve as an oracle in that sense. Like your ability to understand and interpret the dream logic of things to understand dream geography would potentially be impacted. So I think it makes more sense to either be out of time and stuck in the dream or preventing the bad end or a mix of these two. Mm-hmm. I am always very invested in the idea of, yep, this is fucked. I'm going to go back and fix it and make it not happen. So either Chibi-Usa or... Which one was the... Which one was the... Sailor a little bit. Had no. weird, curious time powers. Was it Saturn or Pluto? I think it was, was she Pluto? tiny or was I, she tall? Tall. I think it was Pluto. Can't Pluto. recall. It's been, it's been so long dark, since I've watched it. Pluto's the long, dark stuff hair. with time. I think it's Pluto. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I dig that a lot. I mean, Brandon, yes, that, but also a little tiny bit Mari Makinami illustrious vibes. Yes. I dig this a lot. Of course. Of course I would like that. Of course I want Mari in my game. It's me. But yes. <laughs> Mike, what are your thoughts? I'm weighing either one and or the other of Tragic Genius and Target of the Conspiracy. Aha! Which would probably be, like, somebody who is doing a thing that would, that could challenge the status quo, but not in the direction that the conspiracy wants. Ooh, that would Um, be intriguing. And I mean, you can do both. Because something I was thinking is, like, I had a, a, for a number of years, I would just have a, like, here are ideas I want to play with written on a whiteboard. I have erased that whiteboard, but then I copied everything over. One of the the names is Who Stole the Future? And so the idea would be, and this maybe would create a good character relationship with Yori's character, somebody articulating a vision of a, a future that is anathema to both the conspiracy and the status quo. And so it would be tragic genius because... How could you ever succeed if you're arrayed against both of those? This is going to be very Sandra from Troy. Uh, <laughs> vibes like somebody who is doomed to know the future and never be believed. Because she doesn't predict the future. She knows the future. That's the, that's the difference. It would be very convenient for me personally if Mike played a character along these lines because I have the trait fated. You traveled through time to change another protagonist's fate. What perilous fate are you here to prevent? Whose fate is it? Yours, apparently, Mike. Uh-huh. That so, seems very possible. So then, what, like, do you have a role, then, that is defined by your relationship to that character? That bears thinking about. I see. Okay, duly noted. Because I'm, I'm intrigued to see how that, both of those things play off of each other, because it means that you're both describing characters whose roles are defined by already knowing some portion of the future, but for someone else. And I'm very, I, I'd love to see what that looks like in play. Valerie, what are your thoughts? I came into this with a lot of different character ideas that were also sort of dependent on where other people wanted to go. Depending on which one we end up with, probably the most likely options would be best friend, reformed conspirator, or disillusioned cynic. So I feel like any of those I can make align with what the other characters are going to be playing as. And in terms of the actual playbook, I'm leaning towards either Enigma or Unlikely Unlikely Hero, depending on which way we go with that. I mean, Unlikely Hero has a lot of dramatic energy tied up into it, very obviously. But especially in this kind of framework is very cool. It might work better for Mike's character, depending on how how we arrange things. So it could go either way. 
Does that give you, uh, Yoi, any clearer sense of what role you think uh, you can play with? Forbidden lover, best friend, reformed conspirator, disillusioned cynic, tragic genius, wary caretaker, object of desire, oracle of the dream, or target of the conspiracy. Disillusion cynic or wary caretaker would be interesting to play with, just as someone building off of this playbook that necessarily has a lot of conflicting energy against mm-hmm. the other characters by nature of being a rival. Oh. So, like, taking that concept and melding it with someone who is disillusioned and, like, just mentally exhausted slash wary, and or somebody who is self-appointed or appointed by others to take care of others, but at the same time is in conflict with them constantly for like their own internal reasons. I think either of those would be really interesting to use with the Outsider playbook. That would be very intriguing, I think. Especially from the lens of wary caretaker uh, attached to the rival, there is this sense of, I don't like this, but if anyone's going to do it, it's still going to be me. <laughs> Which yeah, is... The, the idea of... Like, antagonism made beneficial is kind of where I was going with it, where nobody gets to fight with these people except me. So by nature of that, everything else has to be kept away from, like, this group that this character considers their own. So, just to be sure then, as a repetition of if this has already given everybody a playbook that they'd like to uh, play with. Uh, Iori, did you pick a playbook? Time Traveler. Time Traveler. Mike, did you pick a playbook? I haven't. I am The playbook's name, just to interject, is um, The Outsider. The rival is... Ah, right. uh, Outsider. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. The rival is what you call the person that you're picking as a rival. Mm -hmm. I'm leaning Enigma or possibly Guardian. Valor, what are you thinking? Yeah, I, I'm, again, either Enigma or Unlikely Hero, I think. And so if you want to do Enigma, I'll do Unlikely Hero. And if you want to do Guardian, then I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so Enigma does, like, mechanically have some crossover with Ring from Cindered Seal. So if you wanted to branch out a little, um, maybe not Enigma for you, Mike? Yeah, I think the the upside of Enigma would be, like, character coming to understand that they are persona non grata. And therefore, being able to do magic sleight of hand might, might give them more survivability. Mm-hmm. But, like, Guardian Guardian would be for the, like, paladin version of this character. So I take it then that you're settling on Enigma? I'm still torn. I'm going to look at the um, special abilities again real quick. Yeah, I'll be the tank. I'll go Guardian. Hey, tank ring! <laughs> and Valerie. Yeah, I, I could still be either now because, yeah. <laughs> I ah uh, I I feel like either could be good. Does anyone have a compelling argument between Enigma and Unlikely Hero? As in, for example, I could say an Unlikely Hero would benefit from having a Guardian, for example, and then the Unlikely Hero would potentially be that would potentially be the person the Time Traveler was trying to change their fate because that's the one that usually gets shunted into being the um hero character if you're the unlikely hero were you the unlikely hero all through season one or as we've previously discussed we had talked about we had (laughs) um brandon so potentially that would make enigma a better we'll we'll, we'll let brandon uh drop this one but that Mm. might make enigma a better option because Mm -hmm. then yeah Mm. Uh it could be argued that (laughs) Due to reasons, Valerie, your character took a class change. <laughs> yes. You had yeah, greatness well, thrust upon you. The interesting thing of the Unlikely Hero is that it does, uh, it, it has a literal class change built into it, which is really cool. And that is something that, yeah, as a lover of Sailor Moon, I, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's always fun to have that moment of transcendence as we will talk about the actual transcendence type stuff in a bit. But Enigma is also a, a deeply fun option. I feel like if we already have a time traveler who potentially is enigmatic, then having two Enigmas maybe 
is not ideal. So I might have we talked me into unlike the hero or were we or were we trying to talk me into being enigma because of the chat reason? I mean, either one would really work. Either way, narratively, I think both work. (laughs) Which one would be more fun? Okay, Valerie, flip a coin. Uh, Remind remind me what role. Remind me what role. uh, What series role you were uh, thinking about? Series role, as in, uh, so I I had pulled up as two possibilities: reformed conspirator and disillusioned cynic. And so it could be, but but depending on uh-huh. which way I go with this, it could nonetheless it could be target of the conspiracy. It could be best friend. Yeah, uh, I it could it could go a lot of different ways. Due to, and due to <laughs> reasons, both of those things do work. But I will say, if you are if you need if you still need a devil on your shoulder, I will say because of reasons, unlikely hero works best for our purposes when we get to that point when I discuss And we'll do, okay, then I'll just do, I'll go with Unlikely Hero, sounds good. So we should return to the capitalism question, and I will ask playbook questions about, like, your actions and stuff like that uh, later on, but I want to finish these questions first. So, how do we pass our days? And I guess, in particular, I will focus that question by saying, what is the part about capitalism that upsets you all the most? Uh, does this answer have to be the same for everybody? Like, as are, are we as a crew united in the same thing that makes us all very deeply happy about mundane existence, or can each character select a different reason? Right, because this frames our obligation, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So this will indeed frame your obligation. I do want to hear what is essentially the version of that thing that bothers you all individually. But this question is also, in terms of the series itself, a sense of what is the worst thing writ large about capitalism in this space? So there, I do want to hear what is the thing that matters to you personally as a kind of offshoot to all of, the, all of these questions. But as it is written, as far as I can see, it is, on a series level, the thing that is that is stand out about that answer for not even just necessarily all four of you, but the world overall. Oh, just in early discussions, we were talking about wanting everybody to be implicated mm-hmm. in kind of the dystopia, which for me would gesture toward morally compromising jobs. Considering all of the other observations that we've made about the world so far, do you have any idea just off the bat not about the work itself, but what makes it morally compromising. Possibly the ways in which we are forced to hide or lie about ourselves and our inclinations. Something else that could pull on the idea of ritual being one of the cornerstones of the world that we are building. Um, something about tedium, or um, like the slow dull grind of the same thing <laughs> constantly happening over and over, um, might be something interesting to play with. So I do imagine that will play that will play into the space overall regardless. So thank you for reminding me of that. The next question, which is not bold and I'm not sure if that's for a reason. I'm assuming that it is for a reason. How does the world see us if it notices us at all? And that that's a freeform question. So I'd, I'd like to hear from your character's perspective what that might look what that answer might look like. Is this like what we do or literally what we look like or i want to assume that the question is phrased in the way that it is because those things are layered and intersectional it can be a matter of your physical body and things that are tied to your body like gender identity and sexuality and race it can be about work it can be about the person that people imagine you to be outside of work can be an an assumption about your values an assumption about things that matter to you it can be as far as i can imagine for this for this process as simple as whether the world at large views you as a trustworthy or untrustworthy person a good or bad person a nice or mean person because all of those things are very weird and very hostile all of the time for want of a better way of describing it this question is the next door app question if one of your neighbors had next door on their phone what do you think they're saying about you? God, that, that's phrased so hostile and I'm so very sorry, mm-hmm. but that's what it is. I think there might be a sense of 
the characters as stuck cogs in the machine where failure to conform is taken as an affront and a failure to participate properly in society. Essentially, the characters would be seen as friction points by other people around them. But not in the rebellious sense, but in the failure to launch sense. I mean, I think that will vary for the individual characters. Ah, okay. And how hard each of the characters tries to conform in the waking world is going to vary as well. Yeah, like, are we all... Are we all on performance plans from capitalism? Where we are, like, on the edge or possibly on the vector to become those whom society has forsaken. I think there might be some of that energy, yeah. Uh, I think maybe the clearest way to describe it would be like everybody is a little bit uncanny valley, but that variable of uncanny valley kind of varies, obviously, from character to character. The characters and the members of the crew, they all fit, quote-unquote, more or less into like the grander scheme of what the waking world demands of them, but there's something just a bit off that can't quite be articulated, but there's something just a bit funny about them. As someone who just, like, lives that life, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. There's that indefinable something that makes the other people around you think, oh, this one's not quite a person, not by Mm -hmm. my standards at least. Yeah, and, like, pulling, drawing from personal experience, that can either make you super invisible, or it can make you super visible. So, like, the weird thing I was thinking for my character, at least, is that they're not perceived, and that kind of aligns itself to the idea of, like, yeah, they're never around, but I can't really put my finger on when they're never around. Because they're actually always there, but you just don't perceive them as existing, because there's something a bit off. Which, again, going back to the folklore thing, there's so many conflicting traditions about what you do when you see, like, something spooky. So some traditions say, like, oh, you should acknowledge the ghost, you should speak to it, and other ones are very much against that. Like, no, you you must never acknowledge it at all, because that's how you give it power to, you know, mess you up. So To hazard this analogy that I hate, it's the social equivalent of all of the round pegs looking at you and going... So you look round, but you also look like somebody had to shave a bit off in order for you to fit. But you fit, so that's all that matters to me. You look round, but really you look round because you're standing just right in this angle of light, and you're just like constantly turning a little bit, (laughs) so you always look round. Next. The dream is a personal reflection of the waking world. What is the dream to you? So to clarify, we're going with the dream as a quasi-sentient, if not sentient, being that's dreaming of itself, interacting somehow with a conspiracy to do a thing that we don't know of. That's what we're going with, right? So, this is layered in terms of the way that I'm approaching, like, actually answering that question, in that there is the dream that you're currently engaging with, which is the conspiracy. And then there is the dream as the act of dreaming, which is morally neutral. Whether you solve or do not solve this problem, getting in and out of a dream is the exact same. For the purposes of this question, if that makes sense, I'm thinking of that. What is what is the dreamscape as a, as a morally neutral object to you? Free, what, what can it be free from the conspiracy? What can it be as your capacity to enter into it, if that makes sense. This is the part where if Andrew has strong feelings about that read of mine, I should be very strongly corrected in chat, but I want to believe that I'm seeing something here. So I, I think what's interesting about this is is the way that it's going to be personal for, for the characters, because as I was thinking about this question, and, and as I'm conceiving of an unlikely hero type character, I feel like the dream space for, I think it's going to be her, I think we'll go with her, is going to be, I think, a place where she feels sort of, she, she achieves occasional bursts of agency, if that makes sense, where, you know, like in some dreams, it feels like the dream is happening to you, 
And in some dreams, it feels like you are affecting the course of the dream. And so I think for her, until she changes from the one form to the other, so to speak, it's going to be a thing where she in the dream is much more of a passive observer or passive participant who is potentially here with these other characters and knows them. And as far as she's concerned, these are other characters in her dreams. But I think that her agency is still limited and she experiences the dream as much more of a regular person and much less of a transcended um, alter ego, at least initially. So that's, I feel like for her, it is, a movie or a video game that she is an NPC in initially. So to clarify, in this portion of the dream that is free of the conspiracy, are we intending the characters in this conspiracy-free space to be who they are without conflict? Or who they are like authentically? Or because I'm I'm struggling a little bit with like what a conspiracy-free space means, strictly speaking. Mm-hmm. Like, so, is it, are we are we taking the pressure? Because I understand that in within the dream, like the pressures of the waking world have vanished more or less because it is this dream space. But I'm not quite sure what it means to like take the weight of the conspiracy away from it. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, the thing that I am asking is. There is still a value to the dreamscape that has only been corrupted as a result of the conspiracy because the dream can be corrupted by it. But because you can enter the dreamscape, it means that you also are aware of that value, even if that value is potential, even if that value is rare or fleeting for you, and even if Stating that value also means confirming that you are doing the work that you are doing in order to claim that value, if that makes sense. So at that point, I'm asking, what is that value? Because you wouldn't clean up the dream if uh, there wasn't the potential for that value. You could just drink 10-hour energy and never sleep again, which I do not recommend, but... I think for my character dreaming is how they achieve like some measure of internal peace like they swing very hard between entering the space and suddenly feeling like the weight of their own internal conflict and agitation kind of lifted from them or they go there and you know like when you're dreaming and you're looking for something you're not sure what it is but you know it's not here so you keep looking and you keep looking and you keep looking and you keep looking and then there's something in your way and you have to get rid of it I kind of see, like, the character as it's taking shape as, as, like, something, someone who's very agitated and uncorrupted dream space is where, like, the constant engine of their brain can kind of go for once. Like, they can just kind of stop for a bit and it's all fine. It's all cool. They can just be for a moment. But, like, it's very fleeting for them, that piece. Mm-hmm. Yori. What stands out to you? I'm sort of thinking of the conspiracy as a spreading corruption within the dream so that there may still be some oases of like uncorrupted space or uninfected space that are becoming fewer and farther between as we go on. So there might still be essentially like pockets of a surviving history that have not been entirely squashed or erased by the dominant narrative. So does that mean then that in those spaces there is a sense of witnessing the past purely that you are engaging with primarily Mm. because it is more true or more honest than whatever you can find outside of that space? I don't think there is a objectively pure honest past. For my character personally, I think that the value of the dream would be kind of a release valve from pressures in in her waking world, being able to wear a more honest face and so forth. And looking back to perhaps there was a time when 
this was, it would be, have been possible to be this person in the waking world. And maybe there is a future where that is going to be possible. I think the dream for me is potential. It is a half sidestep in, like, within which people can imagine possibility outside of the always already overwhelming um, stimuli that create constraints and conformity. So like the dream is like a revolutionary heterotopia. So I might as well be all the way on my bullshit. Of, of course. We're writers. That's what we're here for. Next. Ah, and this will be very unique. These are the questions that I'm very fascinated for. Fascinated for the answers for in terms of describing how we how we travel through space, which is how do we know when we are in the dream? I will, no inception I will just, stuff though. No, no, no inception stuff. I'm actually I'm gonna jump in and I'm gonna say for my character's purposes at the beginning of the game at least, I think that she knows she's in the dream because she sees one of the other people that she one of uh, one of our RPCs. Like that that will be her clear signpost or one of the symbolic representations that she has come to associate with them. And so for her being still in a more like passive agency list type state, despite the second season nature of this, I think that for her is the signpost is, Oh, I see one of my friends and they only show up when I'm dreaming or, Oh, I see one of the symbols of my friends. Ergo, I must be in the dream. Uh Ah, so that, hmm, okay. I'm curious about that in particular, I guess. I'm also curious whether there is a a non-other human being resource for that discovery. In part because it would be a hell of a lot if you became trapped with the assumption that maybe this person is in fact my friend. Nope. They're part of the stream as well. It can be an NPC who is hostile or or helpful. I can absolutely accept that. I'm so speaking of paprika, it would be like, oh, she sees a blue butterfly <laughs> and she's like, aha. I am no longer awake because that is not a thing that exists in my day-to-day real world. What if there's if there's silence or lack along one of the sensory axes in a way that there is not in the waking world because of media saturation? Like, is that an angle to go Yay. on? Like, you know how neon I makes love a this sound, idea. but you can't hear it in the dream. Uh huh. I love this a lot. In the waking world, there's a pressure, whether it is physical pressure or it is a psychic pressure of like the mortifying uh, reality of being known. And so in the dream, like your ears pop, but like spiritually. Yeah, I like that as well. And I mean, I, I also like the idea of like in this kind of strange kind of meta sense, because you are no longer quote unquote in your body. Your relationship to your senses are warped in a way that you immediately discover because you are trying to interact with a body that is not made of meat. Ah, it appeared. Meat. It's finally made its appearance, Yoi. (laughs) I was actually about to say that the way I would be really interested in playing with is, for my character at least, like there is that physical sensation of a vanished pressure, but... In the dream, they no longer feel physical pain. I like the idea of, like, as their mundane self, they are somebody who has some kind of chronic condition, so where they're always in a kind of low-grade, constant pain that occasionally spikes, but once they fall into the dream world, that pain ceases. And that's how they always know, oh, I'm dreaming now, because I'm no longer in my physical body, which is constantly trying to kill me. So there's a way that I want to play with that, and I want to obviously open by asking you all to qualify whether that makes sense or not, or whether you are comfortable with it or not, of also playing with the opposite version of that, if that makes sense, where the potential comforts and uh, relaxations that you already have or can find in the real world are actually lacking in the dream, or can be lacking in the dream. That, for instance, in much the same way that you can tell that it is much quieter, much less busy, not as physically oppressive in the dream, because you can feel those sensations in the real world. If a thing makes you feel comfortable or or soothes you, 
it has the potential to either give you no sensation or uh, at all, or in order to get that sensation from the dream, you actually have to start thinking about it or forcing it to, and that's when you realize, hey, and if I have to tell my pillow to be soft, maybe this is a dream. Yeah, food is my first touchstone for that. The ability or inability to taste food in a dream. Personally, I I don't. I can't taste food in a dream. And so that would be a thing that would make sense to me. That it's like, oh, here's this whole, you know, Pan's Labyrinth style banquet. And instead of it necessarily turning into something horrifying or bad, it's just this apple has no flavor and it does, it lacks the appropriate texture of an apple or something like that. Just something that is very clearly definably this sense is not working. Yeah, no, I can't, I can't taste food in dreams, which I'm not saying that's for everybody, but I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm in the same boat. I, I can't. We're eating in it. You eat in your dreams? <laughs> yes, I can. Once I had a dream about a burger that was so good that when my roommate woke me up from that dream, I held enough of a grudge that he had to take me out for lunch and get me a burger to replace the one he had taken away from me by waking me up. But then what's also interesting is that if we start from a place where, for example, you can't taste the food in the dreams, if you get to a point where you do have like a really amazing burger and you're like, wait a minute, this is definitely a dream. How can I, how is it possible that I can taste this? And that's a really cool sort of contamination slash infection moment that can occur yeah. along the line. So having having that sort of thing shift as we go is really interesting. Yeah, like I like the idea of playing on the continuum of that because it means not only that you cannot rely on someone else's information to assure you where you are, but you can be in a position where you have to be deliberate about the information that you want to get from the world in order to be sure. Also thinking about that, okay, let's go back to the, we're going back to in my childhood, the Batman, the animated series episode where he is stuck in the dream world and his first clue, well, his, his first major clue is that he can't read any of the books, that they are all just like weird swaths of nonsense words because you can't read in dreams, which is another thing that I imagine some people can, but something like that, where it's like, if the character likes to read and reaches for a book in a dream and is like, this is, I can't focus on this. I'm struggling. You know, that could be another sign. So. Which those are like visual things that I also plan to touch on as well. Like recognizing faces in dreams is something that I am definitely going to play a lot with because I like the idea of you trying to determine who you're talking to and just seeing voice. But we'll get to that point when we play, of course. Um, There's also something to be said for if the real world, quote unquote, is so overwhelming in terms of sensory input that maybe the dream world is in itself not actually devoid of that input. But when you go into the dream space, you're just so bombarded and overloaded that it actually takes a while for feeling to come back. So, or perceptions to come back. So, just because suddenly you're able to taste something or suddenly you're able to hear something doesn't necessarily mean you're out of dream space. It just means you've been separated from the waking world long enough that you can now perceive things going on like, around um, you independently. Like night vision or like mm. if you've been in the dark and you go outside into the sunlight. Yeah. So yeah. good. Yeah, for, for my character, it would be something like oh, I can feel all these other senses coming back, but the one that doesn't come back for me is bodily pain. I don't ever feel that in a dream. So as long as I don't feel that, I know I'm dreaming. That kind of thing. Ah, so next question. How do we navigate the dream? And for those purposes, I'm also going to include how do you get from the waking world into the dream? Which I'm pretty sure that's what it means, but I want to make that overt because that's the thing that matters to me as the as the stage manager of this game yeah again i'll go first just because i think for my character initially at least it's going to be the mundane form of going to sleep because i think that again like her initial you know unlikely heroness is going to involve primarily not having the same kinds of access that the other characters are going to have but i think that as that changes i know we had previously discussed just notions of like portals, doors, windows, and I'm starting to lean towards this computer doing it through screens 
TV screens, computer screens, phone screens. So one thing I'd like to clarify, when we go into dream space, do we physically go into dream space or is like our body still in waking space, vaguely unconscious or on autopilot, so to speak, while the mind is off gallivanting somewhere? Ah, that's a very good question. So the conspiracy seeks to shatter that barrier. If the conspiracy has succeeded, that question will no longer be relevant because the two will be one, which implies that there is a barrier, which implies some kind of crossing. But the question of like astral projection versus crossing over and no longer having physicality is not determined by that, right? It's like there is there is a kind of poetry to either answer. Um, if you are your dream self in the dreamscape, then it means that your ability to transcend is just this stronger, more concrete version of yourself that you can manifest in dreams uh, lucidly, which is a feat in itself. But if you can bring your whole body with you, then it means that everything that you do in the dream is a feat. So either of those things are good at illustrating exactly how spectacular it is that you have this ability in the first place. Neither of them are superior to each other in that sense. Yeah, we just affected the logistics of it in terms of like, if we are physically going into the dream space with our bodies, then we do not have to worry about preserving, protecting the bodies that we have left behind. And if time in the dream space passes differently such that For example, if one of our characters is at work and they have to go to the dream space, if they have to literally fall asleep to do it, is their body going to be sitting at their desk or the cafe or something asleep and, you know, able to be impacted? Or do they have to literally go into the dream space and if they come back out, how long has it been since they've been in there? Does time pass in an equal way or do they come out at the same instant they left or... Yeah, it's like there are a lot of logistics that would be involved in either in either manifestation. I suggest because we are starting from season two that in season one everybody could like fall asleep and go into a dream world that way, and then partway through the arc of season one, we gain the ability to physically go into season two. That was kind of everybody's leveling up, so that now in season two we have both available for us. And we can figure out the logistics on the fly <laughs> in flashbacks, pretending that we've already figured it out before. What unconscious tell accompanies each of us throughout the dream? Sorry, I missed the process of navigation or means of navigation answer. Remember yeah. Valerie mentioned traveling through liminal objects, like reflections in mirrors or screens, passing through doorways, etc.? And that's also in the dream, when we are in the dream. Ah, that's very inter- that that's actually a very interesting option. Is it possible that you leave a dream differently than when you enter it? Like, do you have to well, do a thing in order to wake up? I'm also thinking just like the, we are in the dream. How do we get around? Do we fly? Do we yeah, walk? Do we, fly? do we have do transportation? You, is it like a fantasy thing where there's like safer and less safe pathways is it like old like cyberspace where you have to find this, okay, where we are, I'm going to find the symbol of the place that I want to go to, and then we interact with that symbol, and then we are there. I really like the idea of pathways that have different levels of safety. I would kind of like to be able to get through it by gliding, you know, just like ice skating without the skates so that we get to sample some of the gorgeous or strange or surreal scenery around us. I like the idea of ritual as a means of travel, to borrow that from the waking world foundational um, aspect. So one of the things that I will say that I'm leaning into on an image uh, perspective as stage manager is the idea that traveling requires its own level of dream logic that you already have because you have done this before. That in, like, you know how in a dream where you will cut as if it were a scene from a television show or a movie and just travel through space via that cut, even though the distance between where you were in the first scene and the, where you were where you start moving the second scene is actually vastly huge. 
I feel like that could actually be something personal to the characters, and that might be fun because then we can kind of go through all of those different methods, where for one person it might be the cut method, where it's like a wipe, you know, just like, whoop, and you're there, and it's like, wait, what? Yeah, that each of you (laughs) takes the rest of the crew with you in a certain manner, but it's not the manner that anyone's accustomed to because that's not how yeah. you do it on your own. But then, for example, like like my character could do it that way and then Mike's character, it could be a matter of like, oh, okay, you find the object, like he said, that is representative of the place that you want to go in a hidden objects game kind of thing where you're looking around and you're like, all right, I need to find, oh, there it is, it's the mushroom and that mushroom will take us to the place that we need to go. And whatever the object is could imply what you do with it. Like if it's an edible thing, you eat it. If it's a doorway, you walk through it. If it's a path, you follow it. So yeah, there could be other kinds of dream logic. But I also love the idea of like Yuri's idea of being able to physically travel on flight is a a very common dream thing. And so some sort of manifestation of that, it could be something faster. It could be like seven league boots where it's like, yes, every step is, is a lot of steps equivalent, but it still is steps. So, yeah. Making you all move through the dream is going to be a lot of fun now all of a sudden. Thank you so very much for that. What unconscious tell accompanies each of us throughout the dream? Like a physical tick? I want to say it could be of your dream body or about or that it comes from the world. I'm much more fascinated by what comes through the world, but I want you to be able to imagine your own body through that same lens as well. The first thing that came to mind is like some kind of music, but then I was also thinking of having my character be a teacher and therefore tell like the smell of chalk. That would be really neat. I'm going to ask questions about your character when you learn more about your character, but I'm suddenly very intrigued. So what I will say then that I think will help that process very much is that tell can be a thing that matters to you for good or for ill. That is a part of your subconscious that is not only visible for you but visible for other people so consider like what it may potentially reveal about your inner character to other characters and how you might feel about the fact that it can be revealed and see how that informs the decision that you make valerie what stands out yeah no i i so again yeah i yeah (laughs) can can you see what my face says um i I think it might be really interesting because i'm i'm starting to lean towards an office worker type for my character and so I think that if I think it would be interesting for her tell to be that her hair is loose and sort of swimming <laughs> like like she's underwater, because I feel like in her day to day life, she probably keeps it very like prim, pulled back in a bun professional style. And so to have it be not just loose, but floating would be probably be a way of of like oh she's in this dream world but in terms of a tell for other characters i think maybe like a ringtone (laughs) as stupid as that sounds because it's so mundane again it's just like oh here she is (laughs) just a little ringtone when she arrives like a like mike was saying a song (laughs) depending on the setting it could even be like the the sound of like the notification tone that plays in a station when a train pulls in to let everyone know there's a train coming or something from the commute or something like that. Like the the sound when you're trying to make a phone call to certain systems where it's like a burp, 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 burp. Capitalism is going to ruin us. Oh, Lord. Um, oh, or that horrible hold music. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just play like all the Mass Effect 1 elevator music <laughs> for your uh, entrances. Uh, yeah, like elevator music, something like that, exactly. <laughs> so, me being me, um, and pulling from, like, the Matrix or something, like, just the appearance of an animal, like a rabbit, you know, the white rabbit, it's like the easiest thing to reach for. Or a bird, ha ha ha, look, I did it. Mark it but, on the bingo cards, folks. <laughs> talked about birds, because there are a lot of birds that are heralds of ill omens or heralds of something coming. So there's a lot to pick from there. But something that ties more, I guess, more deeply to the character itself, I guess, would be if the character is entering dream space where other people already exist, you actually don't ever see them enter, quote-unquote. It's the, it's the very classic you look over and they're there. 
suddenly to kind of pull from the idea of like in mundane life they're just kind of glazed over as just like another cog in the machine they're never actually perceived more or less and so that translates into the dream space when they enter like nobody ever actually sees them enter the dream space it's just oh how long have you been there it's me so that's the other direction i kind of go with you said the thing and then a bird thing happened in my brain that I dig a lot, but I like the ideas that you have just, I like everything that you've just described very much. And next we will get into avatar things, uh, as well as some setting and other character stuff that I uh, had uh, specially prepared for our strange friends this evening. And hopefully I don't want to take too much time because this is I know that this is typically kind of later than we usually do, but hopefully uh, we will get everything uh, wrapped up very soon. The theme music for Speculate is Yellow Wood by Greg's band The Road. Find out more at www.thebandtheroad.com. Hi everyone. If you've enjoyed what we've been doing here on Speculate and you've been thinking to yourself, where can I get more role-playing in my life? Can I recommend arvaneleron.com, A-R-V-A-N-E-L-E-R-O-N.com, where you can check out the Curse of Strahd podcast. This, set in the world of Ravenloft, is a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign, which has been running for a long time with a similar group of players, and which has been both a lot of fun and I think you will find enjoyable. If you like it, please let us know both there and over here. You can subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, and many other fine podcast providers. Thanks, and we'll see you over there.